Hello everyone and welcome to episode 125 of Dominario's Judgment, a mostly weekly, mostly constructed magic podcast. I'm Dom Harvey, I'm here with Ari Lax, and we are uh, back uh, individually and collectively uh, from a constructed extravaganza this past weekend at Eternal Weekend. Uh, it was great to, to see you and so many other people after so long and uh, catch up with some old faces, see a lot of new ones. Uh, all the people uh, I told to last week, the the royal you, who I said, come and say hi at Eternal Weekend. Uh, you certainly did that in your droves. Uh, so well done to all of you. You understood the assignment. Uh, I, however, did not. Uh, really struggled to win any matches of magic over this weekend uh, until the Sunday, and we'll get onto that in a little bit. But uh, how have uh, you been and ha- have you fully recovered from this uh what i think is for us and for many the biggest tournament or the you know the, the largest tournament of this caliber that we've had since uh pre-covid at this point yeah i mean i this is pretty close to one of the largest legacy champs ever right i don't know the historical but i know when i won in 2013 it was an eight round event and this was 11 <laughs> so uh things have come a little ways yeah, I mean, this would have been a large event compared to its peers, even in uh, 2018, 2019. But uh, after so long away, this really felt like uh, not a return to the old days, but uh, it gave me some of those same vibes. And it, especially uh, during the Legacy event, when the the pairings went up on the paper pairings board and having to work my way through this this writhing mass of uh, elbows and backpacks and everything to, to try and get to my board. That, that, that brought me back, even if that experience itself, I, I really hadn't missed at all. <laughs> Well, I mean, there was the round where they announced that Melee was down and everyone had to use paper match, uh, match slips and everyone cheered. And then they announced that Melee was back up and you'd have to submit your results online and there was a significant chorus of boos. Well, th- that's just been every single paper tournament for me, it feels like, that I played uh, in the past few years. Uh, from small-ish RCQs to w- whatever the hell this was. Uh, and Companion as well. Let's not let Companion off the hook. Uh, that one, uh, I... My, my pre-modern event, uh, the, the the fake format that I found that I could actually win in uh, on the Sunday, uh, that was being run on Companion, uh, as were a few others. And there was no Wi-Fi in the main hall itself. And being Canadian, I didn't have a good data plan. So my experience of just trying to report results or see my pairings for that tournament was I would run out into the main lobby, try and get on the highly suspect Wi-Fi. And then once that was done, just pray the companion would actually load this time, which usually it didn't. So had to manually, uh, like really manually, report uh, several uh, rounds worth of results for that one. So I, I did take pleasure in whenever I had to do that. Some small consolation: the the, the board by the scorekeeper's desk. It said something to the effect of, uh, "We're using companion, the the one stop future for event reporting." And so I I did enjoy telling the scorekeepers that the the one stop future for event reporting is is down again. And could you please enter my result manually on your uh, on your laptop? I do think the ability to run events without having, like, a dedicated scorekeeper for 500 people whose job is just sitting there and typing numbers in a box, I'm sure whoever would be doing that job is much happier not doing it. Yeah, the the idea that the best way to run tournaments would be to print out and cut out these little slips of paper and you fill it in manually and then one person is deputized to just spend their day typing those results into a spreadsheet. Like, yeah, that is absurd. No less absurd than the fact that we still don't have a functional way to do that uh, online or and the fact that that is the case is because Wizards effectively just does not trust people to actually do that. Um, And so we're stuck in the past using uh, like 1990s internet versions of ways to do this instead of just something basically functional like 
KubeCon was a really like blackpilling moment in that sense where it, the the custom software that they built for that event, which was essentially a one-man operation, uh, was by far the best piece of magic uh, like tournament reporting software that I've used uh, in the, the 20 years uh, that I've been playing for. And so it, it feels like if if one person as a side project can be, you know, lapping the field in that regard, uh, it, we can aim higher. We, we can do better here. But uh, some things never changed. And glad to know that even after all of the tumult of the past few years, reporting match results is as uh, onerous as it ever has been yeah i mean the rest of the tournament was it felt like basically the same uh the the two day 11 round play two rounds on day two thing for legacy champs uh felt kind of weird at first but in practice it was actually just really nice i really enjoyed it. it's like oh day one ended at like you know we did get to like eat dinner it was like 8 30 or 9 but like that's not too bad for a magic tournament then you just wake up the next day you play a couple of rounds and then then you're done like i don't really you know there were calls for like we should run this as a full 15 round gp style event and like yeah i wouldn't mind that but like this this wasn't bad either yeah but it, it was also pretty cool i thought that once you were done very early on the sunday you could stick around and play more magic if you wanted to uh, there was the the team trios event in the afternoon a few other side events uh you could watch the other events unfold just do whatever with your friends you would uh, have time to actually just take in everything that was going on like i, I even though i was <laughs> in the vintage uh, champs for uh, barely any time at all like as short a time as i possibly could be and uh i i made a cursory effort in legacy but didn't take too long before dropping in there uh either it felt like i didn't have as much time as i wanted to just see all the artists see all the vendors uh just i i always enjoy these things just walking around and watching people play magic and there was a lot of cool magic to watch a lot of different formats on display uh and also could use some time to myself occasionally so i i feel like the flexibility that that offered and yeah if you if you had a, an early flight or you just wanted to start the the long drive home early as well you could do that so uh, I, I think that the solution they found was a good one and that there is some amount of your brain is still wired to get some sense of achievement from being in day two of a 2d event even though uh it, it was essentially just a logistical requirement and also it's not like there was a day two car or anything. You could you could show up regardless. Um, but even so, it, it added a sense of like, oh, this is so big that we have to make these weird concessions to it, which in turn helped to legitimize the event to a degree. Not that it really needed that in the first place. Yeah, no, it was a uh, overall a really good event. I think you know what? Something else we missed talking about the structure. Uh, the day three where both the top eights just played out back to back. That was awesome. Like that was really good content to watch on stream and. Good for everybody, especially uh, my uh, wonderful host, uh, who me and Jarvis stayed with, Brian Koval, almost making top eight of both of them. And that would have been a delightful Sunday of playing somewhere between four and eight back-to-back -back rounds across two formats. Right. I, I think it's always a great storyline when the possibility of the, you know, winning both or at least top eighting both uh, remains open. I, I think in Prague for the European one, uh, the, the timing didn't work out for that. So the people who top eight at legacy did not in fact get to play vintage in the end which for some of them was like the main point of the trip in the first place so uh it's a good problem to have you know you'll take it if, if you're in that spot but uh it's nice that people get to have the full experience and yeah i think brian koval uh the smart money would have been on him in really either format uh ended up top eighting vintage and a very near miss i believe in the legacy but also the fact that it was his hometown event as well um you know did not have the same like travel woes or uh, the, the usual uh 
just wear and tear, uh, like mentally and physically, that comes from just traveling to a magic tournament like this, uh, which I think a lot of people got their own kind of stark reminder of this weekend. Uh, he didn't have to experience any of that, just got to sleep in his own bed. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Smart Money was on him before. Definitely, once you factor all of that in, had to be one of the favorites just for the weekend and, and prove that that hype was justified. Well, I guess on top of all this, did you win your festival in a box? Or uh, is that, was it US or NA residents only or something like that? Well, I, I did not even try to win a festival in a box. They would not have allowed me to even uh, dip my toe in that pool because it was US only. So the, the more reliable arena winners, I know Eduardo was uh, was molding that he didn't get to collect his, you know, bi-monthly stimulus check or from arena or whatever. Um that those people had reason to be upset. For me, given the the trend of how well I did on Friday and Saturday, probably would have just been incinerating gems to begin with. So decided, uh, but probably best that they kept me from that in the first place. Um, but going back to just the the weekend itself of it all, what was the the vibe like for you? Just being in that kind of venue or event like after so long, like did was it good to be back? Did you miss it, or was it like, yeah, I can see why some people as they get older, this is like their one event a year, and that that that's enough for them. No, it was good. I I mean, I think that this was just like I have no complaints. I don't mind going to these events. I think there's like a lot of aspects of it that are just like really high upside for me. Like Pittsburgh is just probably one of the most convenient drives that can't be considered a hometown event for me. Uh, it's, you know, these formats are great. Uh, just like the whole situation was just like really good. I don't really have, like, it's not like those, you know, you hear like these old, like GP grinders from the early 2000s and nineties or like the people who were like, I went to like Turin for a GP and we played team trios and two of my three teammates got cheated or it's like, they come back and it's like, it's not the same game. It's like, no, no, this is the same. It was all good. This event, it was something that, I mean, I guess I didn't go to a ton in the past, but it was only because, like, I actually thought about this, like, in the, was it 10 years since I went to the first one of these that I went to, which was 2013. I This is only my third one of the Legacy Vintage Champs, and that's just because there were so many GPs, and now it's like, oh, I actually get to go to the event that I want to go to, mm. and not the event that I want to go to, and I'm also, like, obligated to go to. And it is kind of stark to think about the fact that it's like there's not like other options for this. It's just kind of the whole disappointing thing. Um, I'm still figuring out what my schedule is going to be like and hopefully booking tickets to Chicago to go like uh, do all the Pro Tour side events and win a Dark Ritual. Is that the prize this year? Sure, I believe that one. Um, but yeah, like the I don't love the setup for the RCQ system in the US. Uh, I mean, I think it is a fine setup. I just don't really, uh, I don't find it particularly motivating myself. And like, I don't love the side event offerings there, but like, you know, Chicago is one of those cities where it's like, oh yeah, it's like a two hour flight. And like, I like the city and good stuff, you know, like I'll go there for sure. So this was just like another, it's like, oh yeah, this is the event I want to go to and I'm going to go to it. And I think that's kind of been my vibe the last couple of years. And it's only finally just like, oh, they've started actually having events that are, uh, that feel like they've shown that there's something I want to go to because like it's was hard to tell the first few pro tours what it'd be like and they're like somewhere reasonable to get to so yeah no all good yeah I, that that is the key thing for me and that's where the the GP analogy really comes into play where I I think that you could tell the people who were at a GP out of a sense of obligation because they're a few pro points away from some threshold and uh, they they needed to check in their eleven four to to get that that one point closer where they, they really would not have 
gone to such lengths to get there. Otherwise, especially if it's some um, deranged international cross-continental trip to, uh, to to make it to that event in the first place. And you could tell often those people were actively jealous of the, the hometown heroes who this is their one GP a year and they were just going to have a good time. And uh, even if uh, day two ended up not going so great for them, well, they were just happy to be there um, in a way that the, uh, the, the, the grinder could, could never hope to be. For as much as the the current op system does need work and i'm sure we'll get its refinements uh, over time i do think that the the lack of that sense of obligation to just go on these expeditions these business trips if you like to these gps you don't want to go to i like that that is not an element of the new system like you you go to the pts and hopefully you want to go to the pts because why else are we here otherwise um but you don't have to go down a few rungs constantly in a way that just like crowds out any other commitments and also makes you fall out of love with you know magic tournaments as a whole just to kind of uh get closer to the cheese at the center of the maze I, i'm very glad that that is not a central feature of this anymore yeah, I agree. Even as someone who never really felt that going to like all the domestic USGPs, I I guess maybe towards the end, but I think that I would blame that on the like waning product of GPs more than like the actual process. I somewhere in 2018 the vibe shifted and uh the vibe was fully back this last weekend. Well, that that's yeah, that that's good to hear. And if you enjoy intrinsically the idea of being in this kind of a point system with specified rewards and uh just trying to grind out that consistency over time rather than hoping for uh those spikes to keep things going then yeah i mean the the gp system inherently was better for that and i don't know if there's a way to capture that aspect without the like soul destroying uh grind that uh the the other people experience uh maybe you you kind of have to have both on either but i i don't know a discussion for another time maybe uh but let, let's get into some of the specific uh formats and events that we uh encountered enjoyed struggled with this weekend uh, so let's start with vintage here where you and i and jarvis we all uh our, our little brain trust that we we put together uh we all settled on espertinka in the end and all of us came away pretty disappointed with that choice i think like jarvis uh got got his like workman like 6-3 record or whatever but even he was uh disappointed in the end and i'm now wondering how i tricked myself into doing this because i i said coming in like I think this deck is pretty medium. It's not the safety fault that it has been uh, in the past. My own experiences with it, as someone who did used to win a lot with it, were I, I had to. I felt like I had to work a lot harder than I used to, and I had other choices I could be excited about. But I kind of uh, stuck with old faithful and I did not expect to o three convincingly the way that I did. But I probably could not have expected success for myself, and you know, sure enough, my results bore that part out at least. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot because I look at the top eight of this event, which was like, what, four jewel shops and three oaths, and then one, was it like the uh, initiative blue-white deck? And I I feel like that's the spread that you actually want to play Esper against, where like you have the disruption advantage on most of these decks, and you also have the like turn one combo threatening against them that like, Oh, like, if I just have my Tinker or my Recall Hand, I, like, will win the game if I'm on the play in ways that other interactive decks won't. But, like, I just, I don't know how I would get to that point of the tournament. Like, it just, I don't really, like, based on what I played, it was just kind of like, oh, I'm just gonna 
get smushed in every round leading up to that. And I, I don't really know uh, what you were supposed to do to, like, try and get that edge of being the deck that is just, like, a little more interactive than the Oath and uh, Jewel decks. Like, I don't I don't really know where you were supposed to sit in the metagame that way, because it felt like people were showing up with a lot of the rest of the metagame, and it felt like maybe Moto is just more spiteful against those top two decks in a way that is not represented in paper and that makes uh the idea of preying on those decks like i don't know i don't don't quite know what the the slight shift is yeah i don't know if there's much of an audience for the ins and outs of vintage metagaming the week after eternal weekend like this may be the actual worst week to to have that discussion but i think it's a useful springboard into a larger issue that i've been wrestling with myself and uh will be trying to correct going into the next year of competitive play where i i think i just got the fear like i so my my soft default was uh the beseech storm deck uh coming into to last week and then as the the lurus decks online shifted from blue black to blue white i was worried about that shift in particular because the move to like four main deck lavinia eight forces on top of wasteland saga and other disruption that seemed like a, a natural nightmare for besiege and when i sat down for some focus testing in that matchup my results kind of bore that out um it didn't seem hopeless or unfixable but if a lot of people are going to be doing this then i don't want to be facing them as it turned out the the lowest decks were a not that popular b not that successful and c a lot of them were still just blue black as they were a few weeks ago it, it felt like the paper format had not fully adjusted to cope with you know uh last week's uh online developments and so with all that in mind even if i thought that the blue white matchup was hopeless if i wanted to write that off entirely i still think that the rest of the format at large i would have much preferred to play besiege against than to play uh just stock ish fair tinker if you want to call it that uh against and so i i got the fear basically i identified one potential problem i I, I took the measures to to test whether that was a problem and confirmed that it was, but that almost trapped me in further of, well, yeah, I, my, my, all of my worries have been confirmed, and so I have to uh, make the smart move and make the switch, when in reality, uh, I, I should have just stuck with my guns and my intuition coming into the week, which you know, I, I explained in, in more detail in that episode, and I don't know if I would have done better with Besiege. I think a copy lost playing for top eight in the hands of uh justin franks aka the power nine on moto uh you know notable vintage grinder but i think i would have been more satisfied with my choice and probably would have enjoyed the the tournament a lot more uh as well and this is a a wider issue for me going across uh a, a few events for different reasons so you know i i was invested in this event i wanted to do well in the vintage champs and was kicking myself uh about my deck choice and my results and and pretty Uh, torn up about it by contrast uh the legacy event which i did end up finding my way into after they opened up more slots that one i as as i said uh last week i didn't know what i wanted to play in legacy and was stressing myself out about having to make that choice and so when the event capped it was almost a relief for me that i i was freed from that and didn't have to do it anymore and so once uh, a slot opened up i i joined maybe more out of a sense of obligation than anything and ended up playing reanimator a deck which i think is good and i think uh canister's 
changes to it uh, did a lot uh, to help it in uh, some of its matchups, but the, the deck suffered in a more open field and I got to experience that firsthand. And so after I, you know, had paid the you know fairly steep entry fee for the event and gone to all the trouble to source cards and uh, ended up going like three three drop in the end, I was left thinking like, why did I do this myself? You know, did I think that I was going to have fun? Did I think that I would do well? Why am I doing this? Especially on a weekend where there are so many other magic events to be taking part in, if that's what you want to be doing, even leaving aside all the other things you could be doing with your time on that weekend. And if I don't have a good answer to that question, then what am I doing here? You know, it's not even like uh, some of the online events where, oh, I have spare QP, so I'll hop in the showcase and I don't expect to do well, but as soon as I take my first loss, I can bounce. This was like, I had to make a choice and work hard to get in this tournament. And I'm not even sure why I did that to myself. That's, that is like the complete opposite of my takeaway from this, which is kind of just like very analytical of like, I showed up to the event and like, I like to start start from it. You're like I didn't see any of these blue white lurus decks that made me hedge. Uh, I just got KO'd by two lurus decks in this tournament, and I my lesson is like, why did I play the deck where all I got was one tinker? If my opponents can also just like draw their recall on their opening hand and KO me, like I should have. I don't know. Uh, so a uh, very analytical takeaway versus that. Um, but I think at the core level, it was hard for me not to enjoy all the vintage rounds. Like, that format is just kind of fun, regardless of what you're playing. Oh, um, I, like for me, so the, the categorical difference is that for Legacy, I've played Legacy before. I'll get to play it again. We've got a pretty good Legacy scene here locally. So, you know, if I want to play Legacy, I can do that whenever. With Vintage, those chances really don't come around that often. And especially for this event where it, it is gate-kept by everyone needs to have actual power but the upside of that is everyone is playing with actual power and so um the the process of tracking that down uh very thankful to to jordan baker for, for letting me borrow uh, his power seemingly without much of a care in the world um and so that side quest was kind of weirdly enjoyable in its own right and then the actual experience of sleeving up these cards and i i'm not someone who's ever owned power or played with power so just holding it was uh i, I was kind of like jittery about just the, these cards being in my orbit and then fanning open my first hand of game, match one game one of the tournament and it just has a black lotus in it it's like wow that's i i got the good brain chemicals there you know that, that's a a bucket list item uh right there even if you know my results in the end were not that good with legacy it's like okay well sure there's nothing really as unique about this okay that's fair um I don't know. I I made a post about this in the legacy. Is that like it's probably very telling about me that the two favorite things I had in the legacy tournament in terms of like play were like portent target you and like activating the second wasteland. So I think that I'm just like built to enjoy legacy, which is the format of like deranged uh, resource denial perverts across the magic scene. Like so, I I don't have that. Like you know, you sleeve up Richard Import, and I'm just like, oh, I am so here for this, please. <laughs> So I uh, I did not have that same, like, what am I doing here? Like, why am I playing this? So I was like, oh, no, I know exactly what I'm here to do, and uh, it's what's happening. Yeah, lots of, like, Mystic Sanctuary, back my meltdown moment, stuff like that. So it, it sounds like you were, you were in your lane, and, and you were thriving, at least. Yeah, I, I mean, this event was really sort of, like, a lot of outlier for me. Like, I, I mean, I finished 12th in Legacy. So, I've, like I mentioned, I've played three of these Legacy Champs. I finished, like, first 12th and 0-2 drop, which is pretty good. So, you'd think, like, it's like, okay, play Legacy. 
So I've had never sleeved up Delvers and Brainstorms in the same deck before, before playing this tournament. And I started the event 1-2. Uh, I don't really understand what happened, uh, but I my tiebreakers were like the third highest of any X2 because my opponents all just decided to not lose after we played. Like, to the extent that, like, I mean, seriously, like, in the 1-2 bracket, I'm playing against um, Jason Murray, noted, I think, taxes and, like, Red Prison player. They're playing yeah. Red Prison. I'm trying to remember what Jarvis told me uh, Moto Screen name was there, but... uh you know, we're just playing, you know, great three-game set, joking about who's going to be, like, eating dinner early or whatever. Yeah, we just played that round, and neither of us lost a single match after that. And, that's, like, I, that's the level of, like, random, like, distribution that puts me in the top 16 this event. Yeah, I believe you're thinking of Luanil, although with an outside chance of Akleth, there's a whole, like, family or taxonomy of Death and Taxes mains who's, uh, you know, the, the inner workings are beyond me, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I, I've got my man there. Yeah, but uh, playing Delver was very fun. I think that Legacy has changed a lot for the better in possibly even the last few months, uh, but like definitely last year or so, you know, with a lot of the bandless cleanup. Uh, the the games are just like very fun and they're not like, you know, I tweeted earlier today about how like Brainstorm is no longer the card that you hold on to until like turn six. You like... You just got to get your brainstorms in in a good spot and get what you can out of them just because of, like, a bunch of different factors in the metagame. And, like, I don't know, it, it's just, it's really good magic because it's the kind of magic where you're, like, I have to, like, choose a plan, play to that plan, and, like, understand it's not, like, this, like, long architected thing. It's, like, something could go wrong and I need to be prepared for X, Y, and Z or, like, I don't know, it's just, like, really good magic. I've, I really enjoyed playing Legacy uh, almost to the degree that I enjoyed playing Vintage. Yeah, it seemed like the format was in a decent spot just in terms of uh, diversity of decks doing well. So the top eight, you had uh, two copies of Painter uh, and Elves in air quotes. So this is the Cradle Control or Gaius Cradle or something deck uh, in the hands of Kathleen. Uh, Storm, uh, Brian Cook, Storm Aficionado, uh, representing his baby in the top eight. There was a copy of Delver. There was a, eh, not quite Delver, but close enough, uh, a four-color Beans that, that won the whole event and a copy of uh, Separate Breakfast. And notably, the actual Delver deck, uh, Grixis Delver in the hands of uh, Jay Wesjohowski, uh, he was yet another person playing for a back-and-back -back victory here, which is uh, crazy in its own right and crazy to think that several people have accomplished or been in the mix for that same feat. You know, he had Juju Bean being like back-to-back -back Eternal Weekend, Legacy Champion, uh, and Jay... He just won Legacy at last year's event and was, I think, a single game away from just defending his title in this year's Legacy event. So uh, a pretty insane accomplishment by him and a great weekend for the uh, the DMV area on the whole. Uh, so Cass, Jay, and I think someone else in the top eight too, maybe the, the winner, uh, TK Strachan, uh, all from like the Baltimore, DC, Virginia area. So uh, that Legacy scene really popping off and showing why the reputation of like Legacy in the Northeast, wh wh why that was so strong back in the day. Yeah, I mean, it is a very weird area, like area where you're like, okay, so it's a weeknight uh, Legacy event. Uh, I don't have a tabernacle for lands, but I could borrow three different lands decks that someone has on the side. It's just like really anomalous concentration of like players and uh, history of like owning stuff and like being in the format uh it's a good place to play the game i mean jarvis did not have the best weekend but he's also technically from here and so after after the fact have your views on i guess 
Delver or the Green Splash in Delver or just the format as a whole? Are there any like hot takes that have been uh, uh, getting heat in the oven since you got back? Uh, I think like on a technical view, I think I would have almost rather played Grixis Delver just because I think IRL players are more stubbornly attached to their blue cards than Moto players. Um, I did post some hot takes that I do want to talk about. Uh, the the big one, I guess, so I mentioned a little bit about like the Brainstorm one where like I'm just like fine casting it and I'm fine like Brainstorm locking myself in a decent percentage of games because it sometimes just happens because this is the spot where you have to cast your spell. Uh, first one, I don't mind Triumph uh, of St. Catherine as a card. I think it is just like so bad for physical play that it just shouldn't exist though. I don't think the act of like randomizing the top seven cards of your opponent's library is like physically fun or like anything other than like, uh, why are we playing, uh, you know, three card Monty? Like, I feel like I'm getting hustled like at the table. Like, this should not be happening. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that any more egregious than just the, uh, the shuffling that you always have to go through in Legacy? Or I, I know that maybe this segues neatly into the next hot take about the whole Ponder experience of it all. But like, I don't know. I, that doesn't seem like it's a different animal versus all the other shit that uh, you have to go through logistics-wise in any given game of Legacy. Uh, I think it, it just physically feels different to be shuffling seven cards and be like, I have to shuffle these so that I don't know where the cards are, but there's like, there's just so few of them on the table. Like, it just it just feels physically weird. Like, again, it, it feels like someone is, like, trying to, like, scam the other player into thinking, like, the ball was under the wrong cup or something like that. Just not the vibe that I want. On the subject of shuffling, uh, ban Ponder. Like, Ponder's a fine and fair magic card, but just, like, I don't, I don't want to be doing this. Like, you just cast... There's so many games that are just, like, the first thing I'm obligated to do this turn is cast Ponder. And then I'm going to shuffle, and then the next action I'm going to take is going to be to manipulate the top of my deck. So uh, we're just going to be on pause for a minute here while I'm just taking the rest of my turn. It's just so bad. Like with Brainstorm, it's often like Brainstorm, Shuffle, play an action, like an action-taking spell. It's very rare that you're like Brainstorm, Shuffle. Like if you Brainstorm into Ponder, like yeah, sure, but that's like a conditional play. It's often like the spell you're casting after the Brainstorm is something high impact, like actually tangible. The thing that happens after you shuffle with Ponder is like, I I don't know, I got to draw a card. Like, just like, this card is just sent as Divining Top, but like, you only get to activate it like three times a game instead of 10. Like, just why? Like, I don't know. I'm not like saying dismantle the format for this, but like, I would have had more fun if I didn't have to live with Ponder. Like, just make me play Preordain. Like, just take the action of shuffling out of my hands. Yeah, I, I do think that uh, strategically, the combination of Brainstorm and Ponder is obnoxious, where the two of them together allow the blue decks just an obscenely good degree of card filtering that uh, decks without those can't even uh, compare to. But then they do aid and abet each other's crimes against uh, tournament operations as well, where, yeah, just the the sheer degree of shuffling and the way that you're often going to be casting several of these effects over the course of a turn and then uh, Ponder causes you to shuffle and then they're incentivizing you to play even more fetch lands or other shuffle effects. It's, it's just a nightmare. And it, it kind of feeds back into why I don't think that a deck like Phoenix is a good best deck to have ideally. And it's it's those two factors again. It's uh, you just see so many cards that you kind of just end up doing the same thing every time and there's not really a question over whether you'll find any given thing given enough time, but then also the experience of one player monopolizing the round clock by just uh, moving cards between zones and making these small decisions about hidden information. It, it's just 
annoying like for coverage and also just sitting against them across the table so yeah i if that's a pretext you need to to yeet pond out of the format i would be uh all about it um and in the uh recurring debates over how to curtail the dominance of delver which right now it seems to be in a pretty healthy place actually but it's it's only a matter of time if you look at the uh the scorecard here then i think that axing ponder is a way that you you decrease the quantity and quality of all of that nonsense and also just quality of life wise uh you that is a big improvement there as well so yeah you, you don't need to sell me on ponder being nonsense and i know when preordain was on man and modern there are some questions over should this uh, be accompanied by ponder or should this be ponder instead and my answer is well no you you don't want both like that's more than some of its parts and if you choose one you you easily choose preordain like it, it's not even uh in question for me uh, and so yeah i i'm glad to see that my my lonely vigil against ponder is is gaining more and more uh recruits yeah and then my last thing is that just like banyorian like everyone is gonna double sleeve their deck in the dual land format and just no one has enough hands for this like I guess technically my opponent did when they were playing it, but I think they were like, you know, six, five and played basketball or something like it, not literally, but like just no one can like 80 card decks should not be a thing in legacy. Like just ban Yorian. It'll help everyone. They'll build their decks better because they don't have this excuse of like putting Yorian in the command zone or whatever. Just, just get it out of here. And I just don't want to deal with it. Yeah, I I did idly wonder as I was shuffling up my uh, single-sleeved uh, reanimated deck whether the fact that it was single-sleeved was leaking relevant information to my opponents, where if if you vaguely had some memory of me playing lands in the past or something, am I going to have a single-sleeved deck with like Mox Diamonds and a Tabernacle and stuff? Probably not, and so I, I don't know if it being single-sleeved narrows it down that much to... Uh, like certain archetypes or something but i, I don't know something I, I just wondered to myself uh but yeah I, I, yorion is it's not that present in legacy and it's not that obnoxious gameplay wise when it is but just yeah the I, I i'm not sure how cedh tournaments actually function for many different reasons but this one in particular like i don't know what needs to happen when you have to sufficiently randomize an entire table's worth of 99 card double sleeved probably heavily like foiled and blinged out decks like is that even possible yeah i'm not exactly sure it doesn't make sense to me that you maybe when you add 10 extra cards it starts becoming like you just shuffle two decks and then sort of mush them together not really sure there uh but yeah those were my like absolutely crazy opinions that i don't actually think most of them are worth implementing but i don't know that was just the vibes i got after the tournament um yes. uh, but speaking of basketball though um <laughs> You, you gotta hand it to him uh tom basketball uh noted a uh vintage discord chatter or catcher upper made the finals of the vintage championships with a uh, jewel as the entire top four did uh the the style uh, is in full effect well this is this is more of a uh rant on how mtg melee handles names um where like a lot of people's names are just like random strings of characters because they don't really stop you from putting anything into your like gamer tag. Uh, Tom Basketball, this is actually someone I know who uh, was is like originally from Michigan and played with uh, like the same local game store I did in Ann Arbor and like regularly would be on the like Merfolk side of Merfolk versus Storm versus me. And <laughs> the Tom Basketball is a pseudonym that came up during these days that he has just used since then. But, like, this is the official, like, this actually went on coverage. And, like, I'm now wondering if, like, the random string of characters would just be the person's name on coverage in Top 8, if that's what happened. 
Hmm. I, I'm fascinated to hear this uh, Tom basketball law because I, I only know him from, for example, the Vintage Discord, where the usual pattern is there will be some heated, like overly heated debate about something, just in as the one long-suffering mod will have to clear it up, and then uh, Tom will uh, like chirp in with a take a few hours after the whole uh, like cleanup crew has finished uh, removing any trace of that conversation and you know at, at his two cents. So if you are in one of those like large discords and you see someone getting reacted to with a basketball emoji, it's usually because they've done exactly that. You know, they've, they've basically said exactly what they could have said t uh, two hours ago when the conversation was still active. And since then, we have all uh, mutually agreed to move on to, uh, to other things. Um, but yeah, Melee is weird in that regard. I know there is an ongoing crusade to uh, pressure TOs into actually reporting the results of the top eight because Melee does not do that by default. And so, aggregating results there after the fact is much more trouble uh, than it should be. Companion also allows for uh, creativity in terms of how you sign up. So my companion username has several emojis in it, for better or for worse. Uh, and you, you can really, uh, if you know how to fiddle with the settings, you can really uh, use it as a vehicle for self-expression. Uh, you know, brackets, derogatory. You know, this was actually also brought up if like, if the MT or if the MTG companion app's name field is uh, like database sanitized, or if you could just uh, you know do some nice little uh, text or SQL insertion in your username to like auto win every match. I, look, I, they have enough problems as it is. We don't need to be uh, you know dropping bobby tables on the uh, at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I I do while we're on the subject of jewel shops want to cover possibly the worst bad beat of the weekend. Uh this was a uh Justin Gennari's elimination from Vintage Champs. Have you heard this one? I I I have. I I believe I told this to you, but I think any listeners at home who have not heard this uh, need to hear the full story here. So, uh Justin is playing his updated list of oath against uh jewel shops. Uh his jewel opponent game one just has a fast come the great creator, uh wishes for Mike Lattice, plays the lattice, locks Justin out of the game. Uh just standard jewel shops experience, if you ask me. Not clear to me that there's meant to be a lattice in the sideboard in the first place. I uh, don't think that's a good use of your slot, but whatever. So it goes. Uh so Justin takes a quick L there in game one, boards in his comprehensive anti-jewel package featuring his his one null rod, among uh other things. Uh, and so we get to game two, and Justin leads off with a fast null rod. You know, perfect start to have against uh, jewel shops. So his opponent untaps and plays Microsynth Lattice because he had forgot to put it back in his sideboard uh, after that game one, and so he just had it in his main deck and drew it, and so you play Lattice with a null rod in play, both players are effectively locked out, no one can cast any spells anymore, uh, you can't even force a get anything because all of your cards are colorless now instead of green, and so it just comes down to who decks out first, and if you accidentally leave an extra card in your deck, you're going to be at 61. And so, sure enough, uh, Justin, uh, with his measly, tiny 60-card deck, ends up uh, decking out first, thanks to his own null rod, purely by accident. Which, I, th this is... It is one of the best bad beat stories I've heard in a long time, and absolutely hilarious. It's also just the average jewel shop's experience. Like the deck is a psyop, and this is uh, totally in line with uh, uh, everything I've, I've said about it to this point. Yeah, I I still don't understand, but it's winning so much that I can't like. I don't know what am I supposed to do? Which is wins. Like what am I, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, so I, I'm not sure if I meant to classify it in the like. Goblin, Char Belcher, uh, Oops or Spells, Limit Poker category here, or if it is 
if there's more depth to it than that or if there's just enough raw power that you you shove once and then if it resolves you win the game and then you just get to shove again and how reliable that is because even though it put on a absolutely dominant performance like it, there weren't that many copies in the tournament but it was the entire top four like that, that's an astonishing level of dominance it did not seem to me though like and just in uh what i was able to watch in person and on coverage it didn't seem like oh yeah that guy is a jaw shop specialist i would expect him to do to do well if anything the people who i knew had played a lot of jaw and were you know pretty thoughtful vintage players who who played the deck all got beat up pretty badly so um I, I, there's always this weird thing in vintage where you you see someone putting up a result and you don't know if it's just uh they're playing vintage because hey it's a tunnel weekend and my friend has power so i'll just i'll, I'll play the cool deck or if they're this like absolute shark in the water who only plays vintage and we should be relieved that they don't play other formats because they'd probably eat us alive in those as well um it seemed to me like most of the dual players here were in that former category but uh would like to be corrected if if not yeah i don't really know and i would like to join that group of people who just kind of were playing jewel shops because they played jewel shops this weekend i the deck is just a mystery to me just a complete mystery like it wins games it shouldn't. Like, the second... I don't know if you watched the top eight, but, like, the second day, game of, uh, you know, Brian Koval's match versus the eventual winner was, like, Brian has, like, an Atraxa and a Null Rod in play and then suddenly dies to getting Time Vault comboed because his opponent, like, Atraxas into an Odawara and then bounces the Null Rod and then, like, also plays all of the combo pieces... Oh yeah, I, I certainly have lost what seemed like they should be uh, absolutely locked up games as Oath against Jewel because they end up like metamorphing my Atraxa or my Grizzle Brand or like whatever my big idiot is and then just piggybacking off that to uh, stitch a win together. And I, once again, just completely unremarkable Jewel Shops experience. It's just, just another day at the office for them. Um, I do know that the the vintage challenges online are going to be a complete mess for the next few weeks because Jewel will be more popular than it ever has been, including when it was like the talk of the town and the entire like hype train had had followed it. But also the like the nuclear anti Jewel measures are going to be out in full force as well. So I, I expect to be losing a lot of games to null rods that aren't even intended for me. But hey, I, I I'm also an asshole who has Moxon and Black Lotus and Volky in my deck, so I, I'm going to take my L's to them as well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's better than, like, the Energy Flux experience or the Collector Roof experience, so, sure. Yeah, I, uh, I'm interested to see what happens in Vintage following this result, but I'm assuming what will happen is just, like, the Magic Online results will continue to look as if this never happened. Yeah, and if you, you check in on Magic Online in, like, two months, uh, some new thing will be the flavor of the week, and uh, you won't be able to really draw any connection between what's going on there and what went on here, you know, two, two months prior to that. Yeah, greatest format, really unarguable. Yeah, so uh, mixed results from my foray into Vintage there. I got beat up pretty bad, but even more excited to, uh, to play this event again next year, and uh, if circumstances allow, maybe even try and make it to... Uh, yeah, a tonal weekend on distant shores or to you know one of the four season events uh over in europe as well like the the fire is lit for paper vintage even though keeping that uh keeping that flame alive is easier said than done yeah yeah there's uh there's more logistics than your normal tournament but I, that's sort of part of the appeal yes and I, I do think as well vintage works so much better as this like this opt-in 
rarity than something which if there was some vintage gp which uh uh you know the, the long-suffering person who would rather just be playing limited all the time is trying to eke out their their bread and butter 11-4 in search of their one pro point if they get high rolled by jewel uh you know playing for 11-4 like i, I could see that being like a career-ending uh uh moment in retrospect yeah i mean i think that is the case for a lot of high variance formats is that like the moment you attach some sort of like essentialism to them they start to become really horrific uh in the instant you just are completely abstracted away from that aspect of it they're just the best i mean this is the tournament i cite uh which is fitting because throwback to the fact that cons is up on arena and uh i may or may not be getting my uh stimulus from wizards in about uh <laughs> what is it like 72 hours just like drafting cons against people but uh there was right after cons was fate reforge the like original bomby set that i can recall and the GPs of that format were very split between the people who were grinding pro points and were in abject misery losing to every single rare, and the people who were just along for the ride, like, ooh, this happened, that's cool, woohoo, I'm 7-2, and the, like, it's the, this was also the thing that was posted this weekend, uh, I want to say it was Pokemoki made the meme of, like, the, the, like, the two sides of the bus, uh, meme, where it's, like, 8-3 and 8-3, it's the same thing, there's just two kinds, and in this case, the two kinds are the people with, like, they're just their heart and soul in it and the people with like their brain and their wallet in it yeah that that, that sounds right to me have they found a way to make you uh re-download or update or open arena again uh well i played the uh well i guess technically i downloaded arena on my phone to play the uh festival on a box event between rounds of vintage well not really between rounds of vintage because i was not in vintage for that many rounds but between rounds of legacy for sure uh, that event was awesome. That was, like, the best limited I've played in a very long time. Uh, yeah, like, for it being stupid Chaos Sealed, it was just a blast. It felt a lot more, uh, like, the limited I remembered to play those uh, events. And also, like, vaguely nostalgic in a way that just, like, the cards were overwashed in the original sets. Like, the cards in Midnight Hunt are messed up, and you got to play with a lot of them in that in, like, just a very abstract setting. Yeah, that was kind of cool. Mm -hmm. so so while we're here given that we're uh taking a brief look at so many different formats today uh we, we may as well go to one of your areas of expertise so uh any cards limited uh hot takes or just educational takes for the people at home so that they don't have to you know give austin bursevich their hard-won money to to get a slot in his private dojo um i think a lot of like there's no need to retread a lot of what has been said about the format uh, I do want to highlight a few things. First of all, I have heard, I've listened to a lot of the content podcasts about this. I've heard people mention two cards that you should probably just try not to put in your deck as cards like, oh yeah, removal was worse back then. Uh, Throttle and Bringlow are not good. Do not put those cards. Removal was worse, but there's still this issue in the format. And this is like a broad scope issue is that there's a phase of the game that's about two twos and there's a phase of the game that's about five fives. And the problem with any big or clunky removal spell is that you're going to be casting it in the phase that's about five fives and it's going to be bad because it doesn't kill a five five because it does three damage. Or it's going to be cast in the phase about two twos and it's going to be bad because you're trading down a mana. All bad. Like, not saying that those cards are like illegal to put in your deck, but you should really try not to. Um, I did peek at the 17 land stats and there was a card that kind of floored me that was in this range that like was winning. It's a thing where it's like the card was winning a lot more than I would have judged. Um, but it like 
weirdly makes sense and i just like i don't have good memories of casting it and this is master the way this is the three blue red sorcery that's like draw a card and then deal damage equal to the number of cards in your hand to any target and like i don't know what to make of that but besides that like all of the data like makes sense everything makes sense i don't really know what else to say yeah i i always wonder with some of these uh almost prehistoric formats by arena terms uh how they would look different in this like big data 17 lands era and it sounds like khan's mostly kind of conforms to what people thought about it 10 years ago even if there are these uh anomalies that you've you brought up here well i mean we had data back then like there you can actually i think it was on mtg goldfish there is a stats page for khan's that has like almost goldfish s stats because this was I want to say possibly one of the last... No. Uh, Zendikar was the last one where they actually could scrape the moto logs. Uh, Battle for Zendikar. Where, like, you could just have a bot watch all of the replays and scrape the logs in and parse what cards were cast. So, we had data. Like, it's not like we didn't know. Like, uh, I think the thing I pointed out was, like, Armament Core in those stats had, like, you know, when you talk about, like, the mythic uncommon, like, the Imodanes recruiters that are, like, this is the third best card in the set and it's just an uncommon, Armament Core had those stats back in the day. And, like, I know that because I looked at the stats. So, hopefully people uh, end up enjoying Cards Limited as much as uh, you did back then and as much as it seems like people are doing at the moment. You know, there's always, this, uh, as well, the question of, like, how much of my love for this format was, I guess in your case, you just won an absurd amount, or in most people's cases... Uh, shared nostalgia for simpler times but it seems like uh that format has generally uh aged well to the present day too yeah i think so i think that there's a mix i've seen some takes that like i'm having a bad time playing this format and i think some amount of that is like uh it is very different than normal limited to play matches of magic where you are actively punished for putting bad cards in your deck even the cards that look like they might be okay that just end up being bad. Where, like, in Modern Limited, I think that you can... I don't want to say get away with it more, but they feel like they aren't just, like, insignificant pieces of cardboard. You might, like, lose the same amount for playing them, but, like, it feels like they did something as opposed to, like... The card I think I saw specifically in a screenshot was Inoc Tracker. It's, like, a... It's a morph that flips up into a 3-3 first strike. And, like, that card was atrocious because, again, like, it's like a morph that doesn't fight in the phase of the like the five five phase of the game um so like when you just started putting those cards in your deck your deck just didn't do anything and you played really bad magic where like neither player's deck did ever, anything and like that experience is bad and like you just don't get that these days but at the same time like just don't put those cards in your deck and it'll be fun yeah i wonder if as well the 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 pressures and incentives of a lot of recent limited sets as well as just the the effect of arena and of best of one specifically and of just the, the the tone of a lot of limited content also does not equip people well to dive back into the past for this format in particular where if if your view is that you know if you don't have a two drop in limited these days you're 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 dead most of the time which i don't know how true that is in general but like if you have been led to that conclusion uh then you go back in time here and yeah if you have the the nuts warriors deck or something then that's going to work out well but if you're just like filling your deck with a bunch of wetland sandbars and stuff just so you can say you have something to do on too then that really is not gonna end up well when your opponent has a bunch of you know oh five walls and shit in their deck 
Well, don't you just wetland sandbar. That car was an all-star <laughs> in the green-blue tempo deck. But yes, it, it is that exact context of like, there, uh, there was more of an onus on you to make sure the cards you were playing were worth even casting in the first place. Mm-hmm. Speaking of formats full of uh, somewhat suspicious cards, uh, we can talk about pre-modern because after my combined 3-6 record in the two main events, and then uh, don't want to gloss over my uh, 03 in, in some extracurricular cubing as well, I finally found a format I could win at, and that happened to be uh, pre-modern, where I got second in the uh, the showdown there on the Sunday with a gorgeous uh, blue-white replenish deck, uh, in Japanese foil, borrowed from Marshall Arthurs, uh, who whose collection is one of the most uh, gorgeous and intimidating magic collections that, that I've ever seen. Uh, and there was some debate. I was trying to run the numbers in my head over whether that pre-modern deck that I borrowed from him was actually worth more than the vintage deck that I borrowed from various different sources, which I don't know if it actually is when all is said and done, but the fact that it's even in contention is kind of staggering uh, in its own right. Um, and... I had a lot of fun there. I think the Replenish deck is very good for the people who have any reason to play pre-modern or dip their toe in it. Uh, it is like a lot of decks in pre-modern, and maybe we'll end up doing a whole episode on this format just in a slow news week or over the holidays or when we just want to uh, take a bit of a breather. But even though most pre-modern tournaments allow the like the Gold Border World Championship deck versions of cards and so on... Um, the, the format is gated by accessibility in the same way Legacy is, where most of the top-tier decks have some combination of, like, well, Elves has four Survival, four Gaia's Cradle, or this deck has four Lion's Eye Diamond, or four Mox Diamond, or four City of Traders, or, uh, you know, there's usually one big-ticket item, which uh, is the big uh, financial barrier there, and... It, it turns out the gold border cards actually were legal for this tournament, but there were really mixed messages about that coming out of uh, the, the card titan staff. And so um, I think it was uh, Stu Summers who was going to play elves but couldn't find black border survival, so played a, a different deck instead. Turns out would not have needed black border survivals, but uh, the messaging about that was unclear. There was another guy I spoke to who did end up buying black border survivals for his elves deck, which he wouldn't have needed to because he could just play the gold border ones. And... Now I guess he owns a set of survivals, which uh, is, is nice to have, but uh, not a problem that should have arisen for him if, if people were, were clearer about the rules there. But in any case, uh, so the format is uh, accessible with an asterisk, uh, but I got to play the most, uh, you know, money bags flexing version of that, thanks to the generosity of Martial Arthurs. Um, and that, that deck is if you can build it i think very good and somewhat underexplored it's a lot of fun to play it's weird to think that that deck effectively existed in standard and extended like 20 25 years ago um the basic idea is you have the parallax tide parallax wave uh cycle alongside opalescence and seal of cleansing for the one-two punch there where you you hold priority you wave all of their creatures or all of their lands as the case may be and then in response you blow up whatever the original enchantment was and so those lands are now just gone permanently uh, so abusing some of the like uh oblivion ring style stack timing that was uh, more common back in the day um and then just winning the game with a bunch of your like uh four four parallax waves uh, that have been animated thanks to opalescence uh and yeah, that deck is really good, really fun. I thought I was about to win, but uh, my 
uh, blue-white Dreadnought opponent in the finals, cast a Gush and hit exactly the right cards to pitch cast two different foils against me on my final turn. And then I just got beat up in game three and died. But uh, still a very nice run, uh, which after getting beat up at the tables all weekend was nice to actually win something. Uh, was having a good weekend outside of that, which is always the goal with these things, but nice to actually get some, uh, some wins on the board uh, before uh, leaving the city. Yeah, you just reminded me of the fact that they had to power level Errata Parallax Wave for this deck in Standard, and this was also, like, the deck that was legal after they banned all the stuff from Urza's block. The beauty of pre-modern is, uh, this actually is the place where once your Sano cards rotate out, they get to have a, a, a new day in the sun, except it's Sano cards from 20 years ago if they've been uh, gathering dust in your closet for that long. Yeah, it's uh, it looks fun, and I keep, uh, you know, you were mentioning that you know, the DMV area has a strong legacy scene. It also has, like, a pretty regular pre-modern scene. And I keep hearing people try to bait me into playing, and I just... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it's going to take to sway me, but it's just like, play pre-modern. And then I'm like, yeah, I should be into this. And then I watch people play, I'm like, yeah, I don't know why I would play this. And then I don't. We'll, we'll keep working on that. We'll, we'll find the thing that uh, automatically releases that dopamine for you, and just someone will, will build a version and just put it in your hands, and uh, we'll, we'll get you in some way. Uh, or another but I, I do think it's it is a format which a lot of disillusioned competitive players have tried to find refuge in if you don't like the effect that you know the modern horizon says have had on modern or just the the general trend of recent card designs or uh why are these stickers and these attractions in my legacy format like th this is a a safe haven from all of that and so i think it's easy to paint a too rosy picture of it I don't know how well it would really stand up to actual competitive scrutiny. Uh, so if there was a pre-modern GP or Pro Tour, it would be great for publicity for pre-modern, but it might be the worst thing to happen to the actual like metagame or health of pre-modern. Um, and I know that when uh, Sam Black really started playing it in earnest at the, the events in Madison at Missy Mountain and so on, like was very quickly able to effectively dominate the format and get Lantax rebanned again uh, within a few months. And so... Uh, I don't know if there are other structural issues which is easy to ignore just because people are there for nostalgia in the first place and there's no real incentive to to go looking for the cracks at the edges. Uh, the cards are certainly in the range of, like, I would not be shocked if there was something broken lurking in the, like... I don't know, the fact that you get to play with Gaius Cradle and, like, City of Traders and all these uh, fast lands certainly makes it feel like something is not going to be quite right at the end of the day. But... Uh, until then, it'll be fun to watch people attempt to break it. Yeah, it, it has that quality that older formats basically always have of there are so many broken things that you, you can't ban all the broken things away. You have to hope they just keep each other in this uh, uh, uneasy balance of sorts, which my impression is they are for now, but uh, stay tuned on that front, I suppose. So that does it for uh, the eternal weekend of Adored. We want to uh, take a brief tour to... LMS Barcelona, for example, or to the US Regional Championships, which is uh, heading our way this weekend and where a, a lot is uh, just going on publicly in that regard uh, on Twitter and elsewhere. Well, I, you know, I thought you were going to bridge in. You were talking about uh, mixed messaging announcements. I wanted to talk about the, uh, the mixed messaging announcements happening in Pioneer right now. And I don't even <laughs> want to tell you what the messages are because they could change. Uh, what is happening is the discussion of uh, one, uh, one, one Mr. Zax, one Arya Zax has posted the question of, uh, what happens if I have a removal spell in my hand 
and my opponent Amalia combos in such a way that they accidentally give Indestructible to their Wild Growth Walker or somehow their Amalia breaches the 2020 barrier and they are in the boundless loop. Are they obligated to deck themselves or not? And um, there's been a lot of discussion. There have been 3 a.m. pings on the RC Discord. Uh, let's see. Uh, there's been a lot of various things just sort of like popping up about like different people making different rulings. I think at one point the ruling was we are going to rule this way at the regional championship. Ask your local judge for their opinion if you're playing anything else. Um, so yeah, uh, so stay tuned as to what actually happens. Yeah, we can't even offer a PSA about uh, how this works for the sake of you having that knowledge for the tournament because how it works is unclear there's some kind of like quantum uncertainty situation at the moment and the official guidance may have changed between when this episode goes up which hopefully will be like wednesday night thursday morning and the tournament itself starting on saturday so i guess pay attention to the dreamhack discord uh this is not a scenario that should really come up that often if at all um what one actual like relevant strategic consideration is if you can pump your opponents uh, Amalia at the moment where it kind of skips over the the 20 power check then you can force them into that scenario so I've seen Rimrock Knight pop up in a few Pioneer decks because the the Boulder Rush Adventure Half uh, it looks like it's just okay combat trick target creature gets plus two plus zero but there's no target creature you control or anything it's just target creature and so you can actually use this at the right time to jump up their Amalia at the right moment to force them into this uh into this exact predicament here um so keep an eye out for effects like that or if you're a deck which needs to hedge for Amalia which I think at this point is just every deck I think this will be one of the more popular decks at the RC even if uh the, the card availability concerns can be worked through. Like, that's been a big talking point in recent days. Um, and I think it is a very good deck now that people are figuring out how to build it. And the kind of deck which, if you aren't keeping on top of recent developments, if you just, uh, maybe you logged in your deck a week or two ago and you decided that uh, either you, you don't know that this is a thing or you played against primitive versions of this idea and beat those because they, were, they weren't well refined yet, you have to take this deck seriously. You have to know how it works. You have to know what is actually good against it and what seems like it should be good on paper against it, but is not in practice. Uh, that that is your homework between now and uh, and and Friday. Honestly, the 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 real assignment might just be find a copy of Amalia and learn to play it if you don't have uh, a solid choice locked in already. But uh, if that's all on the table for you, then at least make sure you know uh, how to beat them if you don't know how to join them. Yeah, I think that this deck is a lot better than I thought because of, in part, because of something I didn't quite parse. So, like, I was throwing together early versions. I had uh, returned to the ranks in them because it just sounded like a good card. I didn't quite parse the fact that, like, when you combo off, you can just leave a return to the ranks on top of your deck. And then if they kill your Amalia, you just combo off again and kill them again. Yeah, it reminds me of, I guess, like, the standard rally decks where if you had to small rally uh you could just keep scrying with catacomb sifter towards another rally another company or something to help you build or uh even like the the both the citadel decks and pioneer the same kind of principle where you you kind of short combo put them to the test and then you in in doing so set up the second wave which they then have to deal with uh which they can often like buy a turn or deal with the first wave and they just can't deal with the second wave and if you are exploring away a bunch of 
redundant combo pieces in the meantime, then what it means is even if there's some weird way to XL the stuff that's on board currently, so they have Extinction Event or Sunfall or something like that, uh, then the return is still juiced up by the the second Wild Growth Walker and the second Amalia that you've that you've milled over. I guess Farewell does actually hit everything in that context, so uh, that's something to be aware of against Blue Bite. And I actually think Blue Bite, it had a good weekend last time in the like weird Discover Fever Dream phase of Pioneer, but I think it might be poised for a decent weekend if the Amalia decks do well, because I think it is a pretty natural response to those. It, it does have problems against like the black red decks, especially with Copter in the mix and so on. But if you if you liked your plan there, however much Copium is involved, then I think you can be pretty happy against most mostly everything else. Yeah, I mean, I do think Azorius has a decent shot against the deck, but at the same time, like you're describing five and six mana cards against a deck that is really trying to threaten to combo at like turn three or like company on a fourth turn end step, and I I think that like. There is some amount of respect that has to be given to the deck being a lot faster than a lot of the cards that easily take care of it. Right. So if you're a deck which, let's say you're a toolbox deck, not that those are that popular in uh, Pioneer, but like let's say Khan was still legal somehow. It would make sense, I think, to have some Khan bullet dedicated to this matchup. Or if you're like Enigmatic Incarnation, then you want some kind of bullet in your main deck that is good to tutor up with your two-drop enchantment that uh, hoses, uh, hoses the Amalia combo. If you're the Gruul deck with Huntsman's Redemption, I've seen lists with like at least one main deck Rampaging Ferocidon or Rimrock Knight to to get in those spots. Um, I mean, the deck already has so many good three-drops, but I it wouldn't shock me if you're meant to just have a bunch of main deck Ferocidons anyway, and like it's a fine card in that deck, and also you gain a bunch of equity against the Haunt You deck of the hour for free. Uh, so... I could see that, but basically, if you get to choose whether to respect this deck, I think you should choose to. Like, that is an easy call for this weekend. Yeah, I mean, so between this deck, I think Phoenix is the other sort of easy call of, like, yeah, this deck's going to be good. It was good before. It didn't get worse. Um, Rakdos, I think, is, like, the third real pillar right now, and there's still some debate between, like, are we playing Sacrifice? Are we not playing Sacrifice? We're definitely playing four Smuggler's Copter, right? Maybe. And then, like, I've seen uh, a car another card that I actually think I failed to parse was um, Preacher of the Schism. Uh, this is the two and a black, two four vampire that has, like, two attack triggers. And the thing I didn't parse was that they both were, if you're tied for the most or least life total, you get both. So if you're just at 20 life and your opponent's at 20 life, when you attack with it, you get a vampire and a card off of it. Yeah, the, the the positioning of Phoenix is a little strange to me because we had this whole uh, attempt to figure out the implications of Smuggler Sculptor, and yeah, at first we had the whole one ring kind of pattern of people just put it in everything because it's a very flexible colorless card, and then it turns out maybe it just makes some of the existing good decks even better, and you can reinvigorate your like fringe creature deck with copter if you like but it's still going to be an uphill battle so there's this whole uh hollow blue around copter uh where it turns out you know phoenix is good against copter and probably still uh, the best deck anyway uh with discover you know discover uh caused the sky to fall although it turns out phoenix was actually the best deck for that weekend regardless and now you know we have this wave of amalia hype and on paper phoenix should be good against amalia too i think in practice Return to the ranks does help a lot there, and uh, a well-built Amalia deck can certainly go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Phoenix. I don't know what the next level of counterplay is from the Phoenix side. Um, 
I guess people will be figuring that out. And maybe there's some weird, uh, you know, pump effect, which you can put in your deck to pieces or pick lock for, where if they go for the combo, you can like force a draw or I potentially force them to mill out, but stay tuned on that front, I suppose. Uh, but it, it would be funny if for the third successive recent hype cycle, uh, it turns out that uh, the deck which is not superficially affected by it in any way in Phoenix is still just the big winner uh, from it all. Yeah, I mean, it, there's also the, like, level two for Phoenix, which is that, like, sure, you still lose the Lotus, but, like, Lotus is a lot less attractive as the Rakdos decks speed up with Copter and as this other potentially turn three combo deck is just sitting across the table from you. Yeah, that, that's the, the big thing for Lotus is that I, I've heard a lot of the Lotus mains, uh, the, the, the Flowerland enjoyers, if you will, saying that the, the big thing isn't really so much oh, there might be some more Damping Spheres or, or anything like that. It's just the Black-Red matchup, which you know is going to be popular all the time and typically has been a reason to play Lotus. Like, you're you're not substantially ahead. It's not free, but you can feel confident there. Uh, that just gets a lot harder when they have a two-drop that's a fast clock and also digs them towards their cyborg cards, but which in turn is encouraging them to build their deck in a more proactive way. So you, I've seen these lists with a bunch of Inties and Croxers and so on. And uh, e even if those don't have more Damping Spheres or more like relevant cards in terms of your know, duresses and discard effects necessarily, they just find those cards a lot more consistently. Like if your opponent has Inti plus Cobra or something, they get a lot of looks uh, towards you know the first Thorsies or something, which maybe buy some time to go digging again to find the next one or whatever. And then if they do have high impact cyborg cards, well, they just find those a lot more often, but they also need those less often because they're just killing you on turn five more consistently as well. Yeah, it's, I think this has been a classic problem for like the Lotus Field-esque decks is like, as soon as the decks that they're trying to like be 70-30 against uh, just decide to turn on the gas, they lose enough percentage that you start questioning their like actual position in the metagame because like this is the the other classic Lotus issue is that like the other problem was like, well, yeah, the turn four kill decks can just sideboard Alpine Moons and it's easier for them to beat you than it is for you to find room for all the sweepers. So you just kind of like existed in this middle ground of like, well, I hope the aggro decks that have all of these Alpine Moons don't show up and like the control decks kind of muddle with each other. And like the more mid-range mirror the metagame gets, the more of an exploit I am. And the metagame is just hard shifting away from that. Yeah, there is a bunch of other weird stuff going on on the fringes that we can talk about in a second. But in terms of mainstream decks to choose between or uh, know that you will have to face, like Black Red Mid, Black Red Sack to some extent, both fueled by Copter, Phoenix, I would add Amalia to that mix now too. And I think Amalia is a constraint in its own way because it is a fast combo deck, but it's also one which, if you are in a similar space, you know, your deck that is trying to like do its thing with a bunch of creatures or permanents on the board, uh, but you don't interact that much, really hard to like your Amalia matchup, I think. Um, so uh, I was uh, joking, semi-joking about Copter Angels last week. Turns out Angels, not even Copter Angels, just Angels won a challenge over this past weekend, which I, I love that to a degree, but that is exactly the kind of deck that will get chewed up and spat out by Amalia if that deck is popular, which I think it will be, especially in the winner's metagame there. Um, so even if you, you like your Phoenix matchup with that deck or you, you like your Radix matchup, uh, if you don't like the Amalia matchup, it might be a bit of a shaky choice. And as you said, um, even decks which went over the top of Radix reliably in the past, worth stress testing whether you actually do that 
when they're going lower to the ground. So like uh, Enchantees, for example, Enigmatic Incarnation, I still think it's likely to be good against Rakdos, and that is a reason to play it, but it's not going to be quite as good as it was when the deck was just much more clunky, was going to be saddled with dead cards more often. It's kind of hard to remove Copter with a bunch of your sorcery speed, enchantments, and creatures and stuff. So I would at least want to confirm that for myself rather than taking that for granted the way that I would have uh, in the past. Yeah, and even now as you're talking about like the Angels deck getting chewed up by Amalia, is is that even true? Like the Amalia deck attacks in chunks of 20 and like it feels like between like a pile of apparitions and like your own companies and stuff like that that like the angels deck could potentially just like tank hits and exile the amalias in some degree and like the recombo like does exist but like also like rest in peace exists and like a lot of other rebuild tools so like i can actually see angels winning more matches of that matchup than you would expect just looking at like here is dumb big creature deck and here is like creature deck that rests its opponent yeah, so Angels is weirdly resistant to just the basic two-card combo between gaining giant chunks of life, Bishop of Rings allowing them to have a bunch of blockers once you wrath them, and then instant speed ways to generate more creatures or whatever. So that part is, uh, it's going to be a one-hit KO much less often. That said, once you wrath them, it takes them a while to get back in the saddle, and so you have enough time, especially if you're you know you've explored through most of your deck with amalia like you can find the the missing piece like the dina or whatever that makes it actually lethal outside of combat so i think that they should have it covered although the, the recipe for angels in the past was you you beat most of the fair or creature decks in game one and then your cyborg can be like 10 to 12 very good hate cards and you just jam in a bunch of those as applicable against any given opponent ideally you can like uh, Coco for them or Kayla's into them as well and you hope that that carries a day when you know your resplendent angel is trained Armadon effectively uh, and I I don't know how reliable that's going to be here I would be suspicious and also need to test it if I was going to consider registering angels um, but I in a way I think Amalia is pushing out a certain class of decks kind of in a similar way that Green did even uh, even though it's maybe not the same decks where uh the uh, alleged issue with green was that if you were some uh, mid-rangey deck or synergy deck which couldn't either field heavy interaction for green or couldn't actually end the game, then green would just go way over the top of you eventually, and that was a structural issue that you couldn't really fix. And I think Amalia is a similar thing for the assorted nonsense creature deck. So, I don't know, like auras you know got second at the last pioneer pt or i i said angels but also like mono white humans or uh just any kind of deck in that space where that may extend to gruel 2 to an extent although they can tutor for hate pieces and they may have more play there but if you are just interaction like creature deck that isn't super fast or has a way to really trump them then it's just going to be a slog and that's assuming you actually like your odds against all the other things in the format that are hostile to creatures, like Phoenix, Rakdos, whatever. Yeah, you just got a Kalos for your uh, Graph Digger's Cage. Easy, right? Uh, sure, sure. Um, I, I do think, though, that the the gap between Rakdos mid and Rakdos sack also is a lo lot closer than it was in the past. And I, I used to say, like, sack is in contention for being the best deck, and Black Red mid really lives up to its name. Now I wonder if the pendulum has swung in the other direction, where, from what I've seen, Black Red mid with Copter and the, the changes downstream of that has just felt like a lot more solid on the whole. And 
The issue with the sack stuff is you just don't have a lot of space. And so trying to work copter in there, I mean, you can do it. And there's no reason you have to play four copters instead of some smaller number. But um, even though you would think like synergy deck with a bunch of small creatures would be the perfect fit for copter, you have enough other stuff going on like that, that sometimes you have a hand that's just a uh, copter, deadly dispute, claim the first one or something, and none of your cards really fit together properly. Um, and so even though Sack still has a lot going for it, I think that I would be pushed more towards the, the mid-range deck for the first time really in a long time if you if you force me to choose uh, some kind of Blood Crypt deck. Yeah, I think that I really want to look into the, like, Inti Copter package for the Rakdos deck. Like, that feels like a really powerful thing to be doing and it feels like the mid-range deck sort of exploits that better yeah it's when your cards are mostly fungible and mostly just good then it's easy for that shell to kind of absorb copter whereas the the sack deck in theory what copter does is more at home there but just actually finding room when you have all of these conditional cards is is a lot harder uh, what other decks are or should be on people's radar do you think heading into uh, the weekend well, I, I would say probably certainly not some of the decks we saw pop up in the challenges. Uh, there was a Quintorius deck in, I think, the top eight of one of them that featured Release to the Wind as a, I guess, I don't even know if it's an alternate version of Quintorius. It's kind of unclear to me. This is the uh, two and a blue uh, bounces, I think, a permanent or a spell, and it can be recast for free. Um, but, like, if you cascade into it with Quintorius, you can just recast it. Stuff gets a little weird and iffy there, but I guess technically it's interaction or something like that. Um, and then there was a guy rooted deck in the, I think it, uh, it was in the showcase challenge, correct? Yeah, I think it was uh, the finals of the showcase challenge. So like a very relevant high stakes tournament. Uh, one of the the Japanese grinders just rocked up with a uh, guy rooted where I guess you have to reveal that one pre-game. So the, the jig is up already early on, but uh, I saw a lot of people taken aback, I'm sure, when their opponent just revealed uh, Guy Rudy as their companion there. Yeah, so I uh, seeing those do that well, I would take the rest of the results from the recent challenges with a, a tiny grain of salt. Um, I think the deck that's probably worth talking about the most is Boros Convoke because it feels like it has a like poorly positioned matchup against a lot of the decks that did the best, right? Like, the Amalia matchup, probably not great. The Rakdos matchup, pretty losable if they care. Uh, the Phoenix matchup, same, but, like, it's powerful enough that you probably should still have it on your radar because it's just going to win a lot of games on sheer raw power. Yeah, it, it does have that going for it. I, To me, I, I've seen a lot of the people who uh, are prone to jump, jumping around between different decks who had mostly settled on Convoke going into this weekend, who have now jumped off Convoke in favor of Amadia or Black Red with Copter or something else. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like Convoke is winning many new converts at this point. It's either the people who always play Convoke or the people who settled on Convoke a few weeks ago and for whatever reason uh, can't or won't uh, switch away at this point. Yeah, that's a fair assessment of it. I So you're saying don't switch into it, which makes sense. I think so. I I mean, people tried Copter and Convoke. I think it's an awkward fit there at best. I think other decks picking up Convoke is probably, or picking up Copter is probably good for Convoke just on balance. Although one issue would be is if a lot of these other threats disappear, then you have more slots that you can spend on 
sweepers that are targeting mostly Convoke. Um, so I would be a little leery of registering the deck, I think. And yeah, I, if I wasn't going to do so already, I don't see a reason to switch onto it now. Yeah, and you mentioned the sweeper thing. The uh, one other innovation from the Quintorius list that did well this weekend was to sideboard into four languish. So not only are you like... yeah a Rathagod deck against the creature decks, but your Quintorius, instead of cascading into a copy, can cascade into a Wrath and just, like, you're just, like, decked out on Wraths and you'll just eventually win anyways. Yeah, that, that's the kind of innovation that I'm keen to see from the Quintorius decks moving forward, where that card is still legal, that deck is still legal, that deck kind of sucked when the other Discover decks were legal, and I think this one is mostly pretty tame, but if you can find a gimmicks like that and kind of keep it in your back pocket for the right moment then it is a thing to at least be aware exists as uh you know even though that sounds like damning with faint praise uh on the same note do you know the text of Quakebringer? Uh, this is the this is the is it a giant with foretell yes so damage can't be prevented and people can't gain life is that it yeah, so th this was their hate card um, against the Amalia decks, right? Because the your opponents can't gain life clause on this five four creature is like <laughs> that's kind of the game for them, right? Sure. <laughs> what sure. are they gonna do? Skyclave apparition? It sure can't do that. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's pretty funny. I I've seen the usual uh, like scrabbling through M twenty common boxes to find like blight beetles and knight of dusk something that dmu on that stops people getting life like there, there are quite bespoke answers to the amani stuff if you want them um but yeah it's kind of funny in the context of quintorius where yeah usually all of those are like random two dots or three drops and those don't do what you want you need to find something that rises above uh the quintorius threshold let alone the usual cascade threshold but that, that one technically does so so that's a, a solid find yeah i mean again things that i would not worry about if i was showing up to this event but uh, things that I do like to point out. We'll, we'll also note that uh, some of the blue-white controllers online have started uh, main-decking Hallowed Moonlight again. Uh, so a card with a reasonable floor, like, can always be cycled, and it, almost every deck has something that can get tagged by it to some degree uh, if you go looking for it. But then also, yeah, if you're playing against a Mario or whatever, then having this amazing hoser for all of company called and crucially return to the ranks where they play return you moonlight in response now all of those things get exiled um kind of uh, nullifying the next return as well uh that is a uh, important card to be aware of from blue by but also a card to look at in the context of other decks that can afford to hold up that two mana easily yeah i mean is there a like tier two deck that you specifically would have your eye on for this next weekend or would you just kind of just muddle around in those top three decks and call it a day uh i that's that's really tough for me i, I basically postponed any initial uh like pioneer prep or exploration for the pt until after the rc this weekend because it's really hard to know what the preliminary metagame is going to look like until those results are in um i i would try uh incarnation again as i always do um but you you have the basically the same issues as it's always had. So nothing has fundamentally changed in that regard. Um, in terms of really fringe stuff that might be worth a look, I I was eyeing the Jeskai Ascendancy deck again, actually, because traditionally that has been great against Phoenix, can be pretty good against Black Red, um, and also it just 
if they don't have the right interaction for it, then there's not much they can do. That said, uh, you still basically scoop on the spot to Hallowed Fountain, which th that's just true of every deck that I like in Pioneer. So that's by no means a unique uh, failing point. Uh, but I, I don't know. There there's a lot of decks like that, which you're going to take an automatic L to some uh, top five or six deck and hope you like your chances enough against the, the, the other four or five to make that a good gamble. Yeah, I mean, consider me a skeptic about that Rakdos matchup. Are, which specific list of Ascendancy are you talking about? Are you talking about the um, the Brian Voss list that was like the heavy on Sahili combo? Or are you talking something that's more like the Sylvan Awakening one? Yeah, more, more classic green heavy, uh, presumably with Sylvan Awakening, but maybe you go down the, the Mark Tobias rabbit hole uh, as he did for his RC. So uh, there are uh, things you can do with that. Uh, trying to rack my brain for other stuff like i i thought the rona deck might actually benefit from green leaving and then also is like a weirdly good copter deck uh, as well but uh i think that runs into a lot of hate targeted at you know amalia on one side and just creatures in general on the other uh after that let's see i don't know it, it feels like for as, as versatile as copter is it feels like one side effect of it has been to narrow the format to some degree where like um, the decks that do get to play Copter are just better on the whole, so the bar is higher, and now there are these new threats coming in, like Amalia, which, uh, for example, I thought, well, maybe in Soul is going to be good again, like with Copter, with, with Khan leaving the format, and I think in Soul, just as a deck, it's a lot better than it was, but I think it has a pretty big, like, Amalia problem and so on, even if it turns out that it's okay against, like, uh, you know, Blood Tithe Harvester. Yeah, I mean, I think a bit of the phenomenon you're trying to describe is, like, when I played the Rona decks, I kind of described them as bad mono green, and it's like, oh, mono green's gone. We can play the decks that we thought might be bad mono green. Except for the problem is, is that mono green was losing anyway, so why would you play bad mono green? Yeah, but bad mono green was just mono green. That's what it was. Uh, like, if you could just play stock green uh, for this weekend, would would it even be a good choice, do you think? If, if they... I think things have just gotten worse. Like, I can't imagine the, like, Copter Phoenix uh, other faster creature combo metagame is good for you. Well, I, so green is very good against the card Copter between, like, Khan, Pelucranos, Cavalier of Thorns, whatever. But, yeah, I mean, Phoenix is pretty uh. tough. Amadia, presumably pretty tough. I Maybe there's some, like, weirdo, obscure artifact you can find that helps a little bit, but even so... Uh, like, yeah, if they carved out an exception so that exactly our exacts could play green this weekend... I think it would still be correct for him to play something else. Yeah, I mean, you say that, like, green is good against the card Copter, but this feels like a very common fallacy against um, cards like Copter in general, where there's some sort of, like, engine-y thing going on where you're like, oh, my deck is good against the card Copter, but in practice you aren't good against the games where Copter is active because your deck produces the threats and then the other deck just, like, always has the cards to throw kill spells at the threats and you're losing to the whole of the copter not just like oh i've like played like uh we can even like throw back to like this weekend in legacy and i think this is something that you see a lot is like people would often play knight of the reliquary decks and we've kind of reached the peak of that right now where like knight of the reliquary is great against the delver removal spells your knight of the reliquary deck is just trash against delver because they're just going to move their cards around and beat you it just that's just not how the game works once uh that kind of like card selection is on one side and and answers even are on one side and not the other 
yeah, people thinking that their deck is fundamentally much better against Silver than it is. I mean, that's that's a tale as old as time, but there are also lessons there you can carry across to uh, other formats as well. I, I am, as we talk right now, seeing uh, a tweet by Kellen Pastor saying that he I went 3-1 in the prelim with a black-red, like, aggro list, if you like, from Rob Stanley. So this had main deck for Ossadon, uh, you know, the Cobb Energy stuff, of course, uh, Knight of the Ebon Legion as a one-drop. I've seen that popping up, uh, even Bloodso Champion. I think, ultimately, all of the ones are just just too weak um, at the end of the day. Like, even the curve of Knight into Indy, which is fine, it just feels like the Knight is still the, the weak link there. So I, I think, ultimately, just... Uh, black red aggro ish with a bunch of twos is going to be a better version of this but uh good proof of concept that a show like that is pretty possible yeah i mean the thing i appreciate the most about this is the willingness just to put ferocidon into our deck yes just like, like it goes into the main deck and that's where it belongs and i'm here for i that. am a, a graveyard trespasser apologist i think that one gets a bad rap but at the point where we're debating do we even want many threes or fours that aren't Fable or Shieldred or maybe even are Shieldred in the first place? Um, and people are talking about stuff like Preacher of the Schism. Why not, uh, instead of cards which promise to do a lot, but they don't just play the card which is really, really good at this one thing, and then build our deck in such a way that it is still a good aggro card as it has been for you know six and a half years at this point, and hope that that carries it in those other scenarios. I absolutely agree. I also just want to push back against this Archfiend of the Dross nonsense. Like, you know what's going to happen. Everyone's going to show up to the RC with Archfiend of the Dross. They're going to lose. The people of Shieldred are going to win because Shieldred's a good card. That's just what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, so Shieldred, good with and against Copter. Archfiend, seemingly good against Copter and good against Phoenix, which is, and against, like, Sack. So I that lineup is pretty nice. There is this weird effect of... You, there will be more hard attacks because Go for the Throat is unplayable in a Copter world, but I think most of that two-drop removal has just become Bitter Triumph anyway, if these lists are any indication. Uh, and I think that's probably a good change as well. So, I don't know. I I think Artune is fine. I, I always think it matters more, do you want to play a four-drop, as opposed to which one of them are you meant to be playing? Like, they feel more interchangeable to me and the the big issue is the the sticker price for example you have the the andrew ellenbogen take that the best four drop is croxer which can also be a two drop but which also works really nicely with copter with inti is still the best grindy card in any kind of a grindy matchup so to speak like that that seems plausible to me i would much rather have either of the other actual fours against like random creature deck or something but i i i see the case there at least yeah, I mean, I just, I'm I'm pausing not because, like, it's just because I'm trying to figure out how to say something that isn't just, I don't know, I want to play the good, it's the, it's the bell curve meme of, like, shoulders good, put it in your deck, and, like, I have some cosmic brain reason to, like, put Kroxa in my deck because of this, and then, like, the other end is just like, yeah, shoulders yeah, good, put it in my deck. <laughs> and I don't know which end of the spectrum I'm on, but I'm on one of the twos where it's just like, I just... I want shouldered in my deck. So yeah. I'm just going to put it in there. Yeah, th th this caused a lot of problems in <laughs> Worlds testing, actually, because we had Mogged as our, like, uh, outside uh, kind of standard consultant. And I, there's basically no one in the world I'd rather have to talk to about standard than Mogged. But he's always hated shielded. And his view is, if you think you have a skill edge in these, like, 
black mid-range mirrors, whether it's Espinal or Grixis or just straight Rakdos back in the day, like one of the easiest ways you can lose is for your shielded to trade down on mana and that puts you behind. And then, you know, back in the day, you'd it would walk straight into the moors of like Invoke Despair or whatever. So it made some amount of sense. But then I wasn't sure how to make a counterpoint that was more coherent than just have you played with shielded before like it's so good um and so he would keep trying to cut shielded from all of our decks and i would keep trying to like sneak a shielded back into whatever deck i was playing and i don't think we ever reached a resolution on that but i i'm much more of a shielded sympathizer i suppose and uh hard to go wrong really putting that card in your deck yeah i i think that it's like this idea it's like oh well the easiest way to lose is getting traded down on mana for a shielded it's like yeah the easiest way to lose is not killing the children. Like that's that's a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> yes. Well, that, well, that too. Uh, maybe that's what I should have said uh, instead. But uh, I guess any final thoughts on Pioneer for now? I will probably have a lot to say once we get to have the US RC results to pour over. But any any final thoughts or suggestions for people uh, still wondering what to do for that tournament? Um, play more leagues with Phoenix than you think you need to to practice. Cantrip decks are hard. I, I think my biggest sticking point with that deck is that, like, anytime you talk about Arclight Phoenix, you start getting into the debates of, like, when do I cast this cantrip, not because of card selection, but because of external outside timing requirement? And that's just, like, going to get complicated so fast. Yeah, so Phoenix is a deck, I think, that a lot of people know that they want to play Phoenix. Like, that's their default, unless uh, strongly proven otherwise. I think it's fine for all of them to play Phoenix. I would caution against people jumping on the phoenix train this late but if I, i'm not sure what those people should do instead so maybe they play amalia maybe they play just black red mid with copter and take their chances there but i, I think uh like we said this about convoke we said this about uh i would say about lotus like if you don't know if you can play lotus yet well the answer is no unless you're you know a uh, combo expert uh in other formats across the years and you can transfer that knowledge like i don't know just play some stock right a second set like I, I i wish i had a more adventurous take than that but i think it's either play the deck that you really know and love as long as it's actually good and you do know and love it uh play phoenix if you know how to play phoenix play amalia if you can find the cards for amalia and failing that or if you like playing ragdos just play ragdos uh I mean, it, this might be a case where, like, Rakdos has approached a lifestyle brand the same way Amulet has, where, like, you aren't going to change the Rakdos players. Like, there's a million exciting options around them, and they just, I don't know, want Thought Season Fatal Push, which, like, I don't know, like, I've definitely been in that place before, but, like, it feels like it's, uh, they're unchangeable at this point. Well, well, yeah, so certainly there were people who stubbornly uh, clung to their Blood Crypts despite its uh, sub-50% win rate at all times, but now I think it actually is a good choice. I think there is, uh, for, for once, no shame in actually uh, sleeving up your uh, your Blood Tithe Harvesters. That's fair. Uh, I guess, any thoughts on the Mardu Greasefang decks as a potential angle for Rakdos? I, I think that it doesn't add enough power relative to just clocking your opponent with Inti and Copter to be worth it. Yeah, I, if I had more time, then uh, then various approaches to Greasefang, I think, are a thing to look at. So, you're heading into the PT, I will try to do my due diligence with those. I think right now, you run into this perfect storm of uh, a Mario matchup seems pretty sus. Uh, I think the Phoenix matchup historically has always been sus, and you can target Phoenix, but at what cost? Uh, and then there's going to be more graveyard hate because of Phoenix, uh, and the Rakdos decks are just 
generally better so that's a problem so i, I don't know i even though i think grease fang does actually get better with copter and there are lots of ways you can build it i think uh, the, these are not the times to be playing the grease grease fang just play some on the copter deck instead what about some modern there was a, an interesting spread of results there that we can just kind of abandon pioneer in favor of discussing Yes, so we had our our, bi- our first big post-ban modern tournament with the LMS in Barcelona, uh, and that ended in what has to be the funniest possible outcome, yes? Yeah, so uh, Scam has been banned. Uh, first place of the tournament, Scam, defeating Living End. I have seen a lot of takes that are like, oh, look, they preserved the deck, and it's not a tier one, like, dominant strategy. That's great. Like, I don't really know what about the Scam gameplay was, like, what you wanted to preserve, aside from, like, the deck existing but sure i guess that is a goal that you could want to accomplish in theory i I also don't think it was anywhere near as intentional as that like i in the announcement there was no reference to well we think that uh scam's heart is in the right place but we think it's got a little too big for its britches it was no it was a a full-scale rejection of its play patterns um and if anything it was that the fury thing is so miserable and so popular elsewhere that we're just we're going to target that and uh leave scam whatever uh husk or whatever shell of its former self still exists like in its own corner doing its own thing um and i don't actually know if the scam stuff makes sense given those changes so i know heading into the pt for example uh mcwinsource who uh after another very strong batch of results has now logged up his place in the mocks so congratulations to him um he had played this essentially rakdos ring deck so scammer scam just with ring shielded i think he still had like at least one of grief and fury um but i think there are ways you can build that shell to where you didn't need to be scam in the first place but also your matchup was bad against actual scam and so decks like that so the john sagas of the world i think probably going to have a better time of it now than they did in the past um and it would not shock me if give it two months those are more popular than you know racto scam cutting my four furies for like another few lightning bolts or something um so stuff in that space will exist i think actual scam probably will not but for the next few weeks this result will uh, propel people to see if their, you know, their investment in the scam cards can be preserved for a while longer. I, I'm kind of skeptical of that because, like, it just makes so much sense to me that, like, the grief engine is very powerful and we have just learned the best thing to do with the grief engine is be a deck that generally kills your opponent as fast as possible. And then it's just like, what cards do that? It's like, well, it wasn't just Fury that did that. It was every single other red card. So, like, I think the scam shell still makes sense. Uh, and, like, Voidwalker Bowmaster still beats Yawgmoth. I I just, like, you watch the deck play and you're like, oh, yeah, like, this deck is still just good. And, like, I, you know, it's not going to be, like, the dominant 20% of the metagame tier one strategy it once was. But, like, I don't, ex- I don't really think that the alternative, like, ways to put black cards into your deck are going to succeed on the same level. Even though it does look like the Coffers decks had a good statistical weekend. They did. Like, once again, that's just uh, a, a common trend at this stage. Um, I So I, I see what you're saying. And if you look at the the reasoning for the announcement and then uh, your, our reasoning in our reaction to it and then uh, look at this list, it does kind of check out that if you thought that there was nothing that was uniquely being kept down by Fury and the most natural thing to fill the Fury slots with is just other removal anyway because it's not clear... If there are any other good threats or good, you know, Inquisition of Coslek is no grief or Thorsies, as it turns out. Like, if you're filling those slots, it kind of has to be with more removal. Then, uh, 
yeah, I mean, the segment of the format where the Fury thing was at its best, like, this shell is still going to be good against it. And the only edge case would be, like, against Yorkmoth, for example, right? Where they're pretty good against one-for-one -one removal and weirdly resistant now against one Fury, but it's, it's the second Fury, you know, which is also the same Fury that gets them. Um, whereas the Grief Angle, like, that is a unique aspect to... Uh, just classic scam and also to this deck which the you know Rakdos mid-range decks or John Saga decks of the world like fundamentally can't access and if that's the the big difference maker then yeah that still exists and so maybe the the home forest still gets to exist too yeah let's you know you mentioned Yawgmoth let's talk about that deck which had a very good weekend online um and showed up in the top eight of the LMS uh it was what? Which which Yawgmoth grinder won the challenges this weekend? Was it Zerk? Was it uh, you know pick from the list? Well, there was a challenge won by Zerk, but that's again how much of that is Yawgmoth versus just Zerk? Uh, it's kind of unclear. But there was a challenge with four distinct Yawgmoth decks in the top eight, and I'd seen a lot of uh, chatter about well, if they ban Fury, then surely Yawgmoth is just broken and the best deck by default, which I didn't quite understand. Like I, you, you go back to like Reed's uh, PT postmortem with York, it wasn't just, oh, we were bad against Gambits. We were bad against kind of everything, which explains our win rate. Um, and the deck's got better since then, and things have uh, become more favorable. But like, the deck still has a lot of issues, which uh, have to be addressed. And when you go to the LMS Barcelona results, uh, a much more hostile field for York. So Rhinos everywhere, Living End everywhere, um, and still like this vestigial scam deck doing well as well. Like, not clear what you want to get paired against with your Yorkmoth deck if you're just like scanning those results. Uh, so if the level one reaction to scam theoretically vanishing, as we said it was, is just Cascade uh, both in all of its forms, that's not good news for York. So yeah, I think this is just, yeah, the people who are good with York keep winning with York. That's always been the case. I don't think this is proof that, well, now Yorkmoth is a menace, which is going to have to be uh, banned down to size in six months or anything. Yeah, that's my impression as well. I was fairly underwhelmed with the list of the deck post Bowmasters, just because I think that there's a like significant power hit in changing the matter features either way. Like you either don't change them and they get shredded for some percent, or you do change them and your deck is non-functional. And then even then, you're still the same Yogmoth deck that has always had a weakness to faster combo decks. Uh, and like the deck's clearly powerful, but it's not like. It didn't get better, it just got less bad. Yes. Uh, and then that Cascade Resurgence, uh, that that was very easy to see coming. And as it turns out, at uh, Barcelona, Living End had a phenomenal weekend. Rhinos as well, I think, uh, the way Mangucci uh, explained it was, there were a bunch of matches in the last two rounds that were essentially just Living End versus Rhinos at the top tables, which, you know, whoever won those was going to see a big overrepresentation in the top eight and as is usually the case living end stomped rhino so it was living end uh that won the day there uh but eh, rhino's had a good weekend for itself too but yeah living end maybe the most powerful deck in modern just by default left for its own devices and uh you know the the main deck Dalthy voidwalker cyborg lay down of the void deck uh getting cut down to size like the obvious beneficiary of that obviously had a good weekend like uh story checks out yeah i mean this is also, like, a very consistent trend in Modern is, like, a ban occurs, no one knows what is supposed to happen, they play decks with cards and a sideboard, and then people show up and like, uh, you got some chalices in there, and they always, the answer is, like, I have zero or too, too few that I should have, and then they just die to Cascade until they add those cards back in. Yes, and 
it's no surprise given that that Mariluth uh, did so well because apparently the two and top eight was just carving up a bunch of living end with her deck that in its mostly intact form is still really good against living end um, makes sense uh, I do think that living end is proof of why you know leaving grief around in, in that form is a bit of a head scratcher too because living end is kind of doing the same thing in terms of like the first thought sees is a fine play experience like sometimes it sucks to play against or sometimes they just draw a bunch of thought seizes so they take all of your cards and don't have to make a choice but the first discard effect is fine the second one where it's yeah i just take both of your relevant spells and now you have nothing uh that is what sucks and living end does do the double grief thing just inherently like it it plays it once and then it brings it back and conveniently it's put itself in the graveyard for you but also when you also have the spread of like subtlety and force negation and all of the other like free interaction you you kind of get to the same point of well i just grief you you have two cards that matter i take the one that isn't covered by by dozen other pieces of free interaction and then i just i i know your hand and i i know that the coast is clear um and so like even before they get the actual like second grief trigger they've effectively locked up the same outcome and then once that second grief trigger goes on the sack along with a bunch of generous end triggers and stuff the game is officially ending yeah i mean i understand the like comparison there i think that the living end play experience though is a lot more i i think this just goes back to the idea of like if you're going to play against living end i think that anyone can just sort of guess what they need to do to their deck and be right um whereas that was just not possible with scam so maybe it gets a pass on that front it is true, although the experience of, well, I, I drew my two really good hate cards and, uh, oh, look, one of them got grief and the other one got force negationed and they spent zero mana doing this at any point. Like, that, that is also pretty demoralizing. And so it almost pushes you the same way the scan did towards, like, exactly laying on the void with all of the, uh, the, the, the swings that come with that or just weirdo stuff with, like, cards that are resistant to being grief because they're creatures. So if they grief them then you're okay with that like endurance or generous end or something like i don't know it i think it's less obvious than it seems like it should be and that's almost worse in the sense of you you think you're so clever showing up with your your graveyard hate and then none of it matters and to say nothing of the weird uh wording or timing stuff like you know everyone has shown up with graphics cage against living end exactly once and then learned that lesson the hard way yeah, the weirdness of Livian is certainly a gotcha moment, but like you get got once and then you play the right card. I remain to be convinced that Livian has fundamentally changed, but if it did just on the basis of the Lord of the Rings cyclers, it wouldn't shock me. But like at the same time, I don't know. Every time it feels like it's gotten a little bit better, it's just been like, yeah, but like the fundamental problem of like my opponent controls a ley line and a chalice and the game is over has not been erased. Yeah, I think there's some of what we spoke about with Dredge in the context of, you know, should you unban looting or some of these other Dredge enablers where I think it's really important if that deck exists that you can beat the board against it some amount of the time. And against Dredge, that's true more often than not, which is why Dredge just kind of sucks right now. Whereas against Living End, I think this, the land cyclers do move it to the point where it's pretty hard to fight fair against just a resolved Living End on the board and you kind of have to uh, preempt that or find some weird way to juke around that uh versus just you know th those spots against affinity back in the day where oh shit they just have knockdown ravager so I i'm kind of in the hard lock now that no that's a fair comparison to dredge there where like you just 
it either thing happens or it doesn't. There's no halfway. Also, uh, another thing that Banning Fury has caused problems for because that was one of the ways to fight back on board. But, you know, that's gone. That's done. Not bitter at all about this decision. Well, the, the other thing is that, uh, as some people noted about Fury, it's one way it's at its best is against other Fury decks where the best response to Fury is your own Fury. And so many, like, Rhino's Mirrors, Scam Mirrors, or Rhino's versus Scam matchups would come down to just who has the last Fury standing. And now if that's just no one, then they all get to pick different fights. Um, so yeah, I've heard comparisons to, uh, you know, like Ragavan getting banned in Legacy, where by the end of his tenure, it was mostly only good against other blue decks that mostly also had Ragavan in them. And so if no one has to care about that, then some kind of constraint is lifted uh, and you can actually target the other stuff uh i don't know how much those comparisons hold up but like it, it seems like it is not the game-changing band that maybe it was hoped to be and that the concerns people had of and that we raised of like well okay what was being kept down by this in the first place have mostly been borne out like i i, I haven't seen you know random uh tribal aggro deck pop up that was being kept down and finally after two years it's free again like no it's it, we knew that was uh never the problem and sure enough it seems like it's still not the problem i mean merfolk did like a little better than i would have expected to with the lms but that's that's about it i, I mean merfolk had an 80 percent win rate at the pt so maybe that's a broken deck the whole time and master of the pearl trident or something is is, is going to be joining fury before too long i mean tishana's tidebinder is not a joke i like this is one where i'm just going to take the l i was like Oh, the, you know, the, yeah. like, two, three that I can't even remember the name to that, like, sort of fiend hunters are thing to a treasure. That's going to be a better card. No, no, no. Type Hunter just does, like, a lot of weird stuff that I just didn't really... I think it's hard to process until, like, someone is like, yeah, like, you just suspend footfalls on one and then you counter their chalice trigger when you unsuspend. And now their chalice is dead and you get rhinos. And you're like, what what the hell? Yeah, cards like Tidebinder tend to be bad, but this is actually the good one. So all of my dismissal of it based on previous examples that uh, that, that flopped, uh, yeah, like stuff like Nimble Obstructionist, where the fact that in this case you get both the body and the effect, and if they're playing in such a way that the effect is bad, then the body is still like pretty good most of the time, that is... That, that does move the needle enough, I think, to where, you know... But Modern is weird in the sense of, like, Tidebinder does technically counter Cascade, and it counters a bunch of weird format-specific stuff, but we've also seen it show up in, like, Pioneer and, you know, Legacy. And I it, it, in in my uh, 48 hours before the tournament, uh, oh shit, I thought of some new deck idea phase, I did briefly think about Vintage Merfolk, where, like, Hole Breacher and Tidebinder, and then you have, like, Vordadian Hexcatch is really good. You can make a bunch of Null Rods. I still think there's something there, honestly, but uh, that's for someone else to figure out for now. Um, Maybe next like, year yeah, you could convince Toast to play that deck instead of Mono Red Stompy. Sure, I mean, I can't do worse than I did this year, so so why not, right? Like, maybe I can actually win a match in Vintage next year. Um, I don't know. There's, I think the card has certainly exceeded uh, my and our expectations and uh, has justified the, the, the hefty price tag that it bears currently. Um yeah, I mean, Tybinder very good. Uh, Merfolk, maybe also good? I I, I don't know. I, I could believe it. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's one other deck that uh, is worth pointing out on the, like, decks that did get crushed by Rakdos Scam and in part by Fury um, that did do well this weekend, and that is Domain Zoo. 
Yeah, I mean, my impression <laughs> is that it also gets crushed by everything else, so I'm not sure why one one thing being removed would be enough to save it, but sure. Yeah, I just, I mean, that matchup was actually Stone Cold 0%, and the others are, like, greater than 0%. I, uh, uh, sure, fine. That, that, that doesn't uh, wow me or inspire me, but I guess it is technically true. Okay, so you're going to need at least three more events with this kind of statistics to be convinced. Yeah, or just... A list that seems cohesive and compelling, where just the the recipe of I play a bunch of idiots and I stitch my mana base together with uh with glue and tape and and hope that it I I, I don't know like why why are we doing this instead of really anything else that's popular in modern right now like that that was my question a year or two ago when this popped up and it is still basically my question now I think I don't have a good answer for you there. The list has not changed at all in like a year and a half, so I don't know what has changed. Which, for a deck that literally has access to as many colors as you can possibly have, you would think there would be more variety in there, but but no. No, we still have four Cyan and Draco in every single list. I... Sure, I mean, maybe the lesson of Domain Zoo is you don't actually have to play all the cards to have the word Domain on them. Uh... You Although say... then, why are you doing that? It's yeah, I was going to say, you yeah. say that, but we seem to have everyone putting a lot of cards with the word Domain on them into their deck. Anyway, uh, final thoughts on uh, early post-band modern or any other of the the myriad formats that we've uh, covered today, or really that we haven't. Uh, you know, freestyle segment here, ad lib time. No, I'm, I mean, I'm excited to play modern. I expect to have the experience of, like, we get a month where people are allowed to sort of have fun, but then, like, lose to the one ring or whatever when people play against it, and then we have some event that condenses everything down, and we remember that, like, there are still three to five problem cards in the format, but... I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts. I might get back to some uh, is it Merc tiding until I lose enough to not do that. But it is good that the format has decondensed and like some of the things like we played the decondensed modern format that didn't really change a lot for a long time and it was very enjoyable. So it's good to have some of that back. Um, I just don't think the problems of the format have been solved. Yeah. So we will be back with a presumably more focused episode uh, this time next week and also with some kind of plan going into the holiday season which may just be hibernation but maybe there will be some content in there as well uh we'll figure that out uh in the meantime uh you can find us on twitter uh, at dominavia at armlx you can find the podcast on twitter at dominaria underscore pod you can find us on patreon at patreon.com slash dominaria's underscore judgment uh you can find us and many other people discussing uh exactly what a loop is and how to resolve those in the context of competitive magic over in the discord you can be stuck in the loop along with the the rest of us um but and you can find us back in here this time next week uh but until then uh take care everyone